So, Dave, I've actually interestingly come across a video. Somebody was talking about this on the internet about wars that go long, and and World War One was an example. And they said something like the French are on public record explaining to someone else, maybe the British or the Americans or something, that the war, World War One, could not possibly last more than a year because everyone was going to run out of money. <laughs> yes. There is no money in the treasury for a war longer than a year. So obviously it has to stop. It will, it must be decided or we run out of money. And so this today's episode is actually the story of how you can fight a war longer than you have money for. Yeah. And and the consequences of doing so. Yeah, you're right. Well, certainly nobody in in government or in the armed forces uh, had foreseen what the war would become. So instead of it being over by Christmas (laughs) or Christmas of 1915, uh, it had become a a deadlock, a, a wrestling, well, no, not a wrestling match, but a, a contest of, of prolonged battering. Yeah. Uh, and the war of attrition cost lives, but it also cost tons of money. Resources, yeah. Yeah, millions more troops were raised, and they all needed to be equipped. Uh, AJP Taylor says that the First World War uh, was even greedier in terms of munitions than the Second Right. We did some comparisons between World War One and Russia, Ukraine today, where they're talking about thousands of shells a month. And World War One, some of these battles are millions of shells in a single battle. Right. Last weeks. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. And, and it's fair in World War Two to speak of of battles, but you didn't have a front line that stayed in the same place. Yeah. for the entire duration. The closest they came to that was, I guess, on the Eastern Front. Uh, Taylor says there weren't as many machines, uh, trucks, tanks, airplanes, but the demand for guns, for cannon, and for shells became almost limitless. Every country experienced a shell scandal where the generals complained, you know, we're out of ammunition, and everybody looked at the government and they just had to shrug and go, I don't know, what are we supposed to do? Yeah. So it, it became clear that if they were going to continue fighting, they would need to have an industrial revolution. And they would need a new economic system to go with it. Right, because you don't have, in a, in a market-based ideology, Industrial revolutions are things that happen. They're not things that you plan and make happen. You're, that right. doesn't. That's not how economics is supposed to work. And so, the war actually impels everybody to go down this road of planning, which is not supposed to be how economics works. Especially. Right. Right. We we can't wait for the supply to catch up to the demand. Yeah. So they did the usual thing. They uh, put pressure on the workers first. So workers were persuaded or in some cases compelled to change jobs. And they were also persuaded or compelled to lower their standards in terms of uh, wages, uh, hours, 
and working conditions. And then the employers worked to government order. The The French were, were the first to adapt to this. They, they had a tradition of planning the economy, which went back to the French Revolution and, and to Napoleon. And it, I made a, a connection there. You remember all the French socialists yeah. uh, who talked about a planned economy, like Saint-Simon and Fourier and those guys. And it came out of the French Revolution and that experience. But the French didn't trust their politicians or their generals. I, you know, I, I think with good reason, <laughs> but that ended up limiting the scope of their financial and industrial management. And and also with the Germans in control of northern France, meaning much of France's coal and their industrial areas, the French had to rely on imports from Britain and from the U.S. The global, it's a global economy now. Yeah. Yeah. In a and, way they, that, yeah. and as Mark Bloch predicted, and, and as you say, they they paid for it by contracting debt mm-hmm. and by printing more paper money. And the government financed munitions production by lending capital to entrepreneurs, interest-free, of course. So right. here's here's a gift of money so that you can make more money. <clears throat> and, you know, naturally enough, those entrepreneurs made enormous profits at public expense. Uh, it was crude and it was inefficient. And, and proper accounts weren't kept all the way through. By 1916... There was virtually no reliable information about the state of public finances. This is fascinating because this is not unlike how it has worked ever since. The government spends money directly. They create the money to to provide it directly to military contractors. Yep. And then the military contractors charge what they think they like what they like to provide the weapons and so in the process the money disappears down this sinkhole and it's not like consumer goods where the money kind of circulates because it goes into this black hole of military contracting which not only are there 300 or whatever i don't know what it is now inflation adjusted but 750 dollar toilet seats and and right. so on with the american army but also everything that's produced is destroyed on the battlefield so it's not you're not making assets that depreciate even or or durables or things that are consumed you're making things that are destroyed and that go <clears> and destroy <throat> other things yeah and you're so, making things that the politicians don't understand that the politicians don't understand. And yeah, so this you're, is this you're is talking a major... about high tech stuff. Yeah. And it you know, the the price is the price because this is really high tech stuff and the politicians go, Oh, okay. And they, they skip over the toilet seat and the uh, the fifteen hundred dollar wrench, the dual purpose wrench, right? Because not only does it put nuts on, <laughs> but it can take them off. Absolutely. And right now I think there was there were there have been stories in the media about how the U.S. military is unable to account for some trillions of dollars at at this exact time. I'll look it up while you're talking, but this is all part of this transformation of the economy that happened 100 years ago that has not been surmounted or changed, really. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I read that about uh, about their aid to you to Ukraine. I think the American government yeah. did a little uh, did a little research and found out. Oh, look at this! We've got six hundred million dollars that we didn't know we had. Yeah, there was a funny press conference the other day <laughs> where someone journalist was asking. There's everybody that speaks for Biden is kind of robotic and strange looking, but there's a younger guy with a really fancy haircut who is really thin and pale and looks very strange and he he said something like well there is no magic fund unless congress approves and he kind of said it in this sarcastic way because it's almost like he was acknowledging that there had been magic funds that they had found before uh, well i believe so. it was creative accounting it it was a it was recalculating the depreciation on yeah. uh, some of their equipment Okay, so back to France uh, and the chaos in their economy. Part of it is that the French army consisted largely of conscripted peasants. So we forget that. So, back sorry, in, Dave. Let me. I just found. Oh, you it. got it. It's, Go ahead. Pentagon can't account for sixty-three percent of nearly four trillion in assets, <laughs> and the subtitle is: De Department of Defense regularly buys parts and equipment it doesn't need because it can't keep track of the parts and equipment it already owns. Wow. Interesting. Yeah, it's wow. just here it is. You want to know where it started? This is where it started. Yeah, yeah, it did. So uh, remember that a hundred years ago, uh, even Western Europe was not as heavily urbanized as it is now. So you had more people living in the countryside, and that meant more small farmers and, and peasants. So the French army consisted largely of conscripted peasants. And that left the women behind to work the farms. And that meant that total food production fell. Uh, sugar became a luxury. There were two meatless days a week. And French restaurants, God forbid, were restricted to serving only three courses. So following historical practice, the government concentrated on controlling the supply and the price of bread. So to a certain degree that worked, there was enough bread for everyone. But all other matters of price control and rationing and things like that were left to the individual département, which meant that supplies around France varied dramatically. Is a so département a state or a province? Yeah, remember the French Revolution? They got rid of the old provinces and they created, I think, 83 uh, departements, roughly equal in size and named after geographic features rather than, you know, yeah. historic aristocrats. So, you know, Burgundy and Aquitaine, those names disappeared and you got, you know, uh, Upper Seine and, yeah, High Vosges. G13 or whatever, yeah. Yeah. So... Each département could set the prices or, or set the rations, and it, it just means that it, it varied dramatically. One writer I read, Colin Cross, he used the words oscillated, so price and supply oscillated. And that meant that producers simply shipped their product where the prices were highest. The city of Paris incurred huge losses trading in food. But they considered these costs necessary because they were insurance against public disorder. So, so we don't want food riots. 
Is this the hard? Is France hit harder than Germany? Is France one of the countries that's hardest hit because it's actually the front is on their territory? Right. So the loss of their industrial areas meant that they had to buy weapons from Britain and the U.S. And that meant that they had to borrow incredible sums and it meant that they printed more paper money. So the French franc depreciated at the same time as the cost of living uh, had already risen by 40 percent in 1916. So, you know, that class of people, the French called them rentiers. So you have savings and they're invested in bonds at fixed interest rates. Well, now you're in trouble because the cost of living is rising and your your uh, income stagnant. Yeah, sticks. Uh, Public officials, uh, formerly a very secure, very respectable uh, career or employment, were now distrusted. And all of these things contributed to French war weariness and a, and a lack of confidence in the government and in, in the system. Wow. They, they managed th- to survive World War One, but it proved pretty disastrous in 1940. Well, and when you consider their military model is based on suicidally courageous charging, you, you're not going to do that unless you have some trust in your cause and your neighbors and your countrymen, right? Well, they, they ran out of trust in 1917, and, and we'll explain why and, and what that meant. It was pretty significant. There's another author uh, that I read a long time ago, not not recently, Gabriel Kolko. He wrote a book called Century of War, and he looks at the way that these big wars transformed all of these societies. And one of the things he says is, particularly on the economic side, that the World War One started this process of empowering the business people, the business mm-hmm. community, because mm-hmm. they were the only ones who could do this, that when they turned to them to produce the weapons and do the finances and everything, and they, they used it to their advantage relative press their advantage relative to other groups in a very radical way so mm. okay mm. well the germans took longer to get going but then acted to greater effect says cross this had a lot to do with walter rathenau rathenau was a prominent jewish businessman he had a phd in physics and became chairman of the electrical engineering company Allgemeine Elektrizitätsgesellschaft, or AEG, which his father had founded. The company was very good at vertical integration. So <clears throat> rather monopoly. than <laughs> creating a monopoly, basically. Uh, yeah, but vertical integration. Okay, so horizontal integration is... Uh, Buying all your rivals. No, it's like Tim Hortons. You you just have more and more branches of your business all over the place. Vertical integration is when you buy the companies that supply you with the raw materials or, right? So if you're going to make, if you have a a hotel chain, for example, no, if you have a railway 
So buy the steel plant that makes the rails and, and your locomotives and cars. And then buy the mine that provides the iron ore. Right. And then buy the hotel that your train stops near and, and so on. So Rathenau set up uh, power stations in Manchester, in Buenos Aires, and Baku. He owned a streetcar company in Madrid and was involved with 84 other companies around the world, some of which he restructured and made more profitable. Uh, you might have liked this guy. During his time in German Southwest Africa, Rathenau condemned the treatment of the Herero people, uh, referring to the genocide perpetrated against them and, and the Namaqua people as, quote, the greatest atrocity that has ever been brought about by German military policy. So far. He condemned the system of deportation and concentration camps and described the present condition of the native as having, quote, the outward appearance of slavery. Yeah, good for him. Yeah. Uh, he was instrumental in convincing the German war ministry that they needed to set up a raw materials department. So they put him in charge of it. That that still happens, right? You make a suggestion mm -hmm. and you end up sure. <laughs> either heading the committee or on the committee. So they uh, they put him in charge of it from August 1914 to early 1915. He focused on supplying the war industries and developing substitutes for materials that couldn't be imported because of the British blockade. Oh, can I tell a little uh, Zionist story here? Sure. Because um, on the other side, the British, uh, the Zion world Zionist movement at the time, the leader in Britain was Haim Wiseman. Right. And Haim Wiseman is a chemist, and he uh, became notorious in Britain because he worked on finding a substitute for acetone that he they couldn't get because I guess they could they used to get it from Germany. So by finding this way of making acetone from I think bananas or something, he uh, endeared himself to the British authorities, and they said, "How can we repay you?" And he said, "Oh, help me out with the." with the whole Zionism thing and settling Palestine. So, yep. Yep. Uh, that story will tell again. I, I know a little bit more about the uh, people who put him in touch with the government. <coughs> oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. I, I believe one of them was, uh, uh, Scott, the, uh, the founder of the Manchester guardian. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah. I remember that. I, I read that. Yes. Yeah. Indeed. So the, the German system was public control without public ownership. However, the government had commissars who participated in the actual management of the companies. Uh, so bread there's a tremendous solid, just to say, there's a tremendous solidarity between government and business in Germany that maybe we don't see in, for example, contemporary United States where business is very anti-government. <laughs> well, they, yeah, they say they are, but they yeah, right. readily accept the handouts. That's well, government sure. is pro-business, but business is anti-government. So it's, a, it's an yeah. interesting... Until they're in financial difficulties. Unilateral relationship, I guess. Yeah. So in Germany, bread rationing began as early as January 1915, but they had a serious uh, problem, a dilemma, really, Nitrates were scarce, 
so the question arose, should they be used for fertilizer or for explosives? I think you can guess which one they chose. Uh, food production declined and there was a bad winter, 1916-17, uh, which didn't help. Uh, it was known as the turnip winter because early frosts spoiled the potato harvest. Now, the 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 Germans certainly had ingenuity when it came to their, their food. Uh, they created a number of substitutes known as ersatz. Uh, it, it sounds awful, but <laughs> apparently they weren't that bad. They made cake from clover meal and chestnut flour. They made coffee from roasted barley, rye, chicory, and figs, and Ersatz coffee became <clears throat> a national drink. I suppose if everybody has to drink it, it's not sure, yeah, quite as bad, right? School children were taught to thoroughly chew their food <laughs> to prevent damage to their digestive systems from some of the stuff they were consuming. Now, the German system, we, we've covered this before, it was hierarchical, it was authoritarian, uh, with an infusion of democracy. Oddly enough, they had universal suffrage where the British didn't. But this, <clears throat> you know, authoritarian system relied on the average German worker trusting his social superiors and being willing to vote for them. Shortages right. and hardships were, were tolerable as the price of eventual victory. But if you're not going to win. Yeah, the, the, they were incredibly self-confident in 1916, and that turned out to be a mistake. So the psychological shock of 1918 of losing the war was absolutely enormous. We'll obviously come back to that. Uh, there was some political opposition to the war. In December of 1915, 20 Social Democrat members of the Reichstag voted against the war credits. So early the following year, 1916, the party split in two. The, the war brought new social problems, uh, certainly in Germany, but everywhere. One of them was, how do you look after the wives and children of soldiers? You have to make some kind of, you know, Welfare adjustment. Welfare system, yeah. Yeah. Money. And there was also a major problem <clears throat> with profiteering. I don't mean that they had a problem, you know, throwing money at businessmen, but it was the look of the thing. Profiteer became a very, very bad word. Uh, at first... Wartime production was approached unsystematically, as in France. Huge profits were made and, and prices for all commodities began to rise. And this would eventually cause massive discontent in, in all of the countries, which in the end reached the point of revolution, certainly in, in Russia and Austria-Hungary and Germany. Germany, yeah. Yeah. So basically... They they kept fighting because, you know, losing the war was not an option, but continuing to fight the war 
you know, they, they committed suicide, these regimes. Yeah. Uh, none of the countries tried to pay for the war out of increased taxation. Germany even lowered taxes to alleviate some of the hardships. Ultimately, uh, each government at war seems to have assumed that the enemy would pay. Remember Bismarck and the indemnities yes. that he... Yeah, so they're all thinking, okay, we win the war and the other guys will pay uh, our bill. Which is even more gambling on the future, right? I mean, what's more more spec? It's like buying, reinvesting in futures, but investing the entire country in futures. Well, yeah, and it's also incredibly myopic how how can you not realize that the other country is doing the same thing you are and you're not both gonna win so yeah so you expect them to pay would you be able to pay if you lost well you don't even want to think about that obviously so uh in in the meantime governments borrowed uh and they borrowed from their own people there were appeals for war loans uh, they created victory bonds, so asking their people to invest in the war. And you're going to have to pay those off afterwards. Uh, the yeah. process was different in, in Britain. Uh, first, they had always maintained a smaller army, right? They had that little yeah. army for their little wars uh, in the colonies. Second, the government didn't have a tradition of working closely with uh, business. Even even the conservatives were liberal in the sense of their economic theory. It was all laissez-faire. Yeah. Kitchener was pretty much the only one who saw the future clearly. Uh, he shocked the politicians at his first cabinet meeting when he announced that the war would last three or four years and would require an army of many million men. So one description of, of Kitchener that I, that I read, I found quite funny. Uh, somebody compared him to a lighthouse. So the, the beam of the lighthouse comes around and illuminates everything, you know, incredibly brightly. But then, of course, it disappears as it circles around. Yeah. So Kitchener had these moments of insight. Yeah. And, and I guess they had trouble telling which was an insight and which was just Kitchener rambling. It was Kitchener doing his thing. Well, I mean, the other thing Britain has that nobody else has is India. So they have this inexhaustible reservoir of conscripts that they can get almost for free. And well, yeah, and except that else. at first they weren't sure that they could do that, like move so many men out of India what if you have unrest or or yeah know? oh that was a big issue we will get yeah, back to that they, yeah they were they were thinking they might have to station british troops in india to to maintain order so that, it didn't work out that way but I, you know you could see them thinking that so the the cabinet was against conscription so kitchener had to appeal for volunteers for the army <clears throat> he expected to get 100,000 in the first 6 months and he was hoping maybe 500,000 in all. Well, Which is still not a lot. It's still yeah, France. I wonder, is, France is still going to have to carry almost everything. Right. Compared to the size of the initial 
British Expeditionary Force, though, it, it's pretty enormous. The the thing is, if Kitchener thought they would need many million men, and you're expecting 500,000 volunteers, where where are the other men coming from? Yeah. I, I don't know that he ever addressed that. Well, his uh, his, his expectations were uh, well <laughs> well short. They got 500,000 men in the first month, and they got approximately 100,000 per month for the next year and a half. Britain raised 3 million volunteers. And that sounds wonderful, but that was not the plan. The country simply can't necessarily absorb them. Well, they they weren't capable of arming and equipping that many men. Right. Then they had the problem of, of many skilled workers had volunteered. And the government had to make some desperate and largely unsuccessful uh, efforts to get coal miners and engineers out of the army. Oh, wow, because they would rather be in the army than in the coal mine, and they needed them more in the coal mine. Yeah. yeah. The training was also ridiculous. Uh, Through the winter of 1914-15, hundreds of thousands of volunteers lived outside under canvas tents, and they were uh, training with walking sticks in their civilian clothes. There were no uniforms. There were not enough weapons and equipment, you know, so... We're just going to pretend until we get stuff. So Britain had a shell scandal, uh, and it was a pretty big deal. And then the Gallipoli disaster shook up the government. So Herbert Asquith, the Liberal Prime Minister, to many people, he just seemed unsuited to the task. He had that sort of, uh, you know... You know, easygoing, yeah, uh, short work day kind of look to him. He's he's napping. He's his men are napping on the on the boats on the warships. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So another historian, uh, C. L. Mowat, said that Asquith had qualities: equanimity, patience, a certain lack of imagination, which That's I a find. Quality? Yeah. Well, for the British, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, Churchill had too much imagination. That's true. Uh, that was proven, I suppose. Yeah. In the... um, and a willingness to wait for the right moment. So patience and willingness to wait for the right moment, that sounds fine. Equanimity sounds fine. A certain lack of imagination. And I think, wow, isn't this predating some recent American presidents too? There's something the public likes about a leader that isn't too smart. Yeah. They don't. They don't trust that much. Yeah. Or something. Now those those traits of Asquith had helped in the constitutional crisis of 1911-1912, uh, not so much in the Ulster crisis. And now with the war going badly, those qualities seemed irrelevant mm-hmm. or even useless. Uh, one description of the prime minister. Uh, said that he was wooden, a passive spectator. He continued to meet with a cabinet of 21 uh, and resorted to improvised committees and then a war council and then a Dardanelle committee and then a war committee to deal with wartime administration. But none of these committees had the necessary authority. They talked. They argued, and then everything came back to the cabinet anyway. 
the politicians didn't direct the generals or hold them accountable. Industrial production was left to, to run itself. The, the slogan was business as usual. And that laissez-faire attitude, you know, eventually resulted in the Shell scandal. So the government seemed to lack uh, drive and a sense of purpose. Things have been working out for them so well that they aren't able to adapt when things are <clears throat> different. Yeah, they didn't see the the problem. And, well, I mean, Kitchener did, but they, the rest of them didn't see the problem until it was <laughs> blowing up in their face. So with all the emphasis on recruiting volunteers for the army, it took a while for the leaders uh, and everybody else to realize that every fighting soldier required at least three civilian workers to keep him equipped and supplied. And don't forget, food is one of the major supplies that's going to be needed. And not just for millions of men, but millions of horses as well. So David Lloyd George was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the Finance Minister, And he took on the job of Minister of Munitions. Up till now, up till 1916, the British uh, people had been treating the war as something extra, something additional that didn't have to interfere with daily life. Now, we're more familiar with that in our time when, you know, wars are going on all the time and it doesn't (laughs) distract from anything. Shopping, yeah. Entertainment, whatever. Um, Prices in in Britain then were still decided by supply and demand. The trade unions uh, jealously guarded their privilege. They, They kept women and unskilled men out of the workshops. And Lloyd George had to change all of that. Uh, Unlike the other politicians, he didn't trust the generals. So he refused to accept the war office estimates of their future needs. So, for instance, he once asked uh, General Haig, later Field Marshal Haig, how many machine guns do you need? And Haig replied that the machine gun was a much overrated weapon. Two per battalion was more than sufficient. Kitchener thought that four per battalion would be useful. Beyond that, it would be a luxury. So Lloyd George told his assistants, take Kitchener's maximum, square it, multiply that result by two. And when you are in sight of that, double it again for good luck. (laughs) So if you do the 16, math, 16, 32, 64, yeah. That's right. It adds up to 64. So before the war ended, every British battalion had 43 machine guns, and they were crying for more. Battalions about what? 500 fighting? Something. Yeah, two battal- usually two battalions in the regiment uh, on active duty and one recruiting. I don't know if they stuck to that, but yeah, yeah, more or less. So Lloyd George was uh, wiser than the generals, that's for sure, in terms of that. Um, Oh, Kitchener, just as a a note, Kitchener died on the 5th of June, 1916. 
He was on his way to Russia. They shipped him there to, you know, basically get him out of the way. And the ship he was uh, in struck a mine near the Orkney Islands. Uh, he went down along with 737 others. Which is interesting, too, because he's not just a man. He's a faction and a point of view in the English ruling class. <clears throat> so everybody kind of has to reorganize and reorient themselves yeah, I think by that point he had become a marginal, marginalized a figurehead, right? So they yeah. they basically moved him into the museum, or you know they kept him where people could see him, but you know well away from any important decisions. Uh, another example of you know the uh, the military men not knowing, <laughs> actually not knowing what they needed. The war office also refused to authorize the Stokes mortar. This was an 81 millimeter uh, trench mortar. Well, 3.2 inches would be the size of the, uh, <clears throat> sorry, of the uh, opening of the mortar. One of the best trench weapons of the war. And the reason the war office refused to authorize it was it couldn't use the existing stocks of mortar ammunition. Oh, so that's short-sighted. Yeah, they're telling the soldiers, you have to use these inferior weapons because we have a huge supply of ammunition. So until that's used up, uh, you don't get anything better. Lloyd George persuaded an Indian Maharaja to finance the production of the Stokes mortar and, and <laughs> got it going. That's He had to go around the war office to do it. This is the kind of bureaucratic stupidity that uh, also resulted in the Canadian government adopting the Ross rifle. I don't know if you remember that story. No. So the, the standard weapon for the British Army was the Lee Enfield. Uh, okay, yeah. It was a superb weapon in the sense that it was uh, easy to produce in large quantities. It wasn't overcomplicated, so it didn't, you know, uh, have problems. You could drop it off a cliff, drag it through the water, and then, you know, beat your enemy over the head with it and still fire it. So it was a pretty... Uh, it's, it's the AK-47 of... Uh, yeah, I guess, I guess so. So when the war began, the Canadians uh, planned to raise an army and, and, and send it over. And they needed weapons, so they needed Lee Enfields. So they asked... Britain for the weapons. They had already experienced this in the Boer War. And they found out that when it came to British uh, supply priorities, colonial troops were kind of at the bottom, <laughs> right? You'll get your weapons when all of our other, you know, home units have got them. So the Canadians asked permission to manufacture Lee Enfields in Canada. And Britain said, no for, you know, I guess the, the usual stupid reasons. Mm -hmm. So the Canadian government decided, well, we're going to make our own rifle then. So they had a competition, and a friend of uh, the Prime Minister was invited to participate. This was Alexander Ross. And Ross Who's made the a, Prime Minister now, Laurier? No, no Borden. Borden. Yeah. So... 
Alexander Ross, uh, you know, created a rifle and these various rifles were taken out to the rifle range and tested. And the Ross turned out to be superbly accurate, a really, really accurate rifle. So the Canadian government decided to adopt the Ross as the official rifle of the Canadian Army and they started manufacturing them. Well, uh, the testing wasn't very thorough. Yes, the Ross was very accurate. It was also very expensive to make. It was also not as durable as the Lee Enfield. And it was longer and it was heavier. Now, longer may sound better to you, but when you're the guy carrying it, when you're when you're the guy, you know, walking through the trench with it, a shorter rifle is more advantageous. And the Ross had other disadvantages that they didn't find out because the testing on the rifle range was just, you know, firing a few shots at targets. Yeah. What the Canadian soldiers discovered was that when you fired the Ross in battle, the breech mechanism heated up and it warped slightly to the point where you could not eject the spent cartridge. So if you've ever seen somebody firing one of these old rifles, or if you've ever seen a World War One movie, you see the soldiers, uh, when you're firing, between each shot, you have to expend, you have to eject the spent cartridge. Is that like, is, is that different from what we would call a bolt action? It, it is a bolt action rifle. Okay. And the shell cating sorry, the shell casings are not automatically ejected. You basically have to pull back on the bolt to kick out the empty casing, and then you uh, push the bolt forward again to press the next bullet into the firing chamber, and then you repeat that every time. Well, once it gets hot, the Ross rifle, you know, the, the metal expands slightly, and you can't eject that spent case, which means you can't put another bullet in the chamber. Your gun jams. You are effectively disarmed. So Canadian soldiers in the heat of battle found their rifles jamming and, you know, you, you bang on it. But if you have to get your bayonet out to pry the shell casing out of the breach, you know, this is this is crucial. Yeah. It, it cost men their lives. Yeah, the other side is... <clears throat> does not have that problem they're shooting at no. you while you're trying to unjam your weapon no or if they're charging at your trench you don't want to be you know head down trying to pick a shell casing out of your gun so canadian soldiers hated the ross rifle they hated carrying it because it was so heavy and they didn't trust it because it jammed uh, after rapid fire so canadians started to lose <laughs> their ross rifles and pick up Lee Enfields from, you know, dead soldiers nearby. So at, at, at parade, you know, they're being inspected and an officer would yell, where's your Ross rifle soldier? Lost it, sir. And then, you know, three guys down the road, there's another guy carrying a Lee Enfield. Where's your Ross rifle? Lost it, sir. <laughs> so these guys are losing their weapons all over the place and the officers caught on. So, they uh, resorted to a simple measure. They uh, they made the soldiers pay for the lost rifles. And that stopped 
the epidemic of losing their Ross rifles. But uh, one historian I read estimated that it cost thousands of men their their lives. Wow. Yeah. Now, back in, in Britain, Lloyd George got results. Uh, whatever you may think of him from his later <laughs> actions, this guy got things done. Uh, sometimes he threatened manufacturers. And sometimes he let them make inflated profits, what, whatever worked. Mm-hmm. He persuaded the unions to drop their restrictions, let in unskilled workers, let in women. And in return, he promised them improved conditions after the war. And this had pretty big ramifications. The unions dropped their political agenda and they became partners with the government. I mean, in the sense of cooperating, I'm not saying they got a share of the profits because they didn't. But opposition by the trade unions to the dilution of skilled workers was overcome uh, as early as November 1914 by an agreement, uh, the Crayford Agreement. So it was hinted without any precise explanations that the defeat of Germany would somehow raise the standard of living in Britain. Extra colonies or something? Taking they didn't they didn't the, even go no, there. No, no specific reasoning. Just no, just everything will be wonderful after we win. You're gonna you're gonna love it. Yeah, yeah. So union membership rose uh, from 4.1 million in 1914 to 6.5 million in 1918, and then returning soldiers at the end of the war swelled those numbers to over 8 million. And this ended up becoming a major factor in post-war politics. The Liberal Party faded and was replaced by the Labour Party. And the Liberals disappeared for, I I know they're back in a small way now, but, you know, considering how many times they were the government, uh, they spent most of a century century, uh, not being a factor. Lloyd George gathered himself a headquarters staff of 25,000 people, including businessmen, engineers, and economists. He ordered enormous quantities of war material, usually far more than the heads of the armed forces had requested. New factories were built, 73 in 1915, 218 by the end of the war. And those new factories meant that workers had to move to live close to them. So there was also a huge uh, shift in population and everything that went with that. Lloyd George tried to persuade workers not to strike. Uh, He made a speech to striking miners in South Wales in 1915, which succeeded. He was Welsh, if you remember. Um, and, And the government eventually nationalized the coal fields in South Wales. That's how important they were. Um, It didn't work everywhere. On on Christmas Day, 1915, 3,000 shop stewards in Glasgow refused to listen to him. (laughs) They didn't even want to hear him. Uh, The socialist newspaper Forward was uh, shut down because they gave a correct account of the meeting. So Lloyd George had the drive, but... As Asquith wrote to Bonner Law, he lacks the one thing needful. He does not inspire trust. I find By the that, way, 
can I tell you a story about Lloyd George talking down uh, workers in another uh, mm-hmm. a couple of years later? Mm-hmm. There's a there's a union writer. Uh, he was one of the, the there was there was a union alliance, the Triple Alliance of Miners, Railway Workers, and Transport Workers. Okay. And so this is after the First World War. Lloyd George is the prime minister, right? And they're having they're talking about a general strike. Um, so there there's this big 1919 strike wave. So he so Lloyd George calls the union leaders of the Triple Alliance to his office. And apparently he says this. He says, "Gentlemen, you have fashioned in the Triple Alliance of the unions represented by you a most powerful instrument." I feel bound to tell you that, in our opinion, we are at your mercy. The army is disaffected and cannot be relied upon. Trouble has occurred already in a number of camps. If you carry out your threat and strike, then you will defeat us. But if you do so, have you weighed the consequences? The strike will be in defiance of the government of this country, and by its very success will precipitate a constitutional crisis of the first importance. If a force arises in the state which is stronger than the state itself, then it must be ready to take on the functions of the state itself, or withdraw and accept the authority of the state. Gentlemen, have you considered? And if so, are you ready? And so one of the the president of the Miners Federation later, reflecting on it, he said, from that moment on, we were beaten and we knew it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, they had oh. no idea how to run the country. So he just said, yeah, you guys want to take over? You can. Yeah. <laughs> but are you imagine, ready to? Imagine Lenin. Imagine giving that speech to Lenin. Uh, yeah, I believe I believe you're in my chair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm not sure about your accent though. I don't I don't know that Lloyd George would have sounded like that. Oh, he was Welsh, right? Right, right. But uh, no, but come on, at that level, he he wouldn't have sounded Welsh, would he? Would he have? Just uh, he, he did. Oh, okay. This is okay. So why did Asquith say he doesn't inspire trust? Because was he it sounds be- Welsh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. He wa- okay, so I, I know the English can tell a Welsh accent. Uh, do you remember a film Excalibur? Sure. Okay, so the part of King Arthur <clears throat> was played by, oh, I'm, I'm not going to remember his name. Um, but, I, I mean, you can picture the actor, right? Yes. Well, he, he was Welsh. So in British cinemas, when he uttered his first line, there was laughter. Wow. For the English, the idea of King Arthur being Welsh was funny. Nigel Terry? Nigel Terry, yeah. He was in Lion in Winter first, and then eventually that part. So, yeah, to the English, King Arthur couldn't be Welsh. I mean, ironically, King Arthur probably was at least part Welsh. My God, Uh, Liam Neeson was in this movie. Yes. Patrick Stewart was in this movie. Yep. Helen Mirren was in this movie. Helen Mirren, yeah. Sorry, oh, as you were. So, <laughs> so back to Lloyd George and why he wasn't trusted. Uh, yes, he was Welsh. He wasn't an aristocrat. He wasn't a landowner. He was a Baptist, not Church of England. And he had been anti-imperialist during the Boer War. He's just not one of us. Maybe that's right? why he was able to talk to the union leaders. Uh, yeah, one reason. One reason. Uh, there were some who recognized his abilities, including uh, Bonner Law, the head of the Conservative Party, uh, Sir Edward Carson, the Ulster leader, 
And Lord Northcliffe, the newspaper magnate, what what was needed was someone who could bring together these people who wanted a change of direction and who might support Lloyd George. And that turned out to be Max Aitken, later Lord Beaverbrook. Now, Beaverbrook's career in World War II is probably better known, but he was important in World War I as well. He's a Canadian entrepreneur uh, who had a fascinating career. Uh, I, I invite you to to check out Max Aitken's career and how he made his fortune. Uh, he was a millionaire by age 30. He did business deals, bank mergers, stock investments, uh, owned newspapers, founded the Montreal Engineering Company, uh, acquired a number of cement companies and amalgamated them into Canada Cement, eventually controlling 80% of the production in Canada. He moved to Britain in 1910, and in addition to his business uh, enterprises, he went into politics. So Bonner Law helped him win a unionist seat, and then Aitken uh, created a new newspaper empire, and eventually came to control the Daily Express. Now, these people in positions of power, we've mentioned this before, they didn't always work together or function as a team. They had their personal quarrels. So Carson and Bonner Law didn't get along. Uh, Lloyd George uh, against uh, General Robertson, the chief of staff. Uh, Lloyd, Lloyd George didn't trust Robertson, and, and rightly so, because Robertson was working against him and leaking information to the press. Lloyd George also knew that he wanted a smaller, more effective war cabinet, with himself obviously at its head, and Asquith merely as formal head. So instead of a cabinet of 21, he was thinking five, which would be... You know, there's a lot less talk and, and more action, he, he hoped anyway. So Max Aitken facilitated a meeting between Bonner Law, Lloyd George, and Carson. And at that meeting, they agreed to suggest the idea of a war cabinet to Asquith. And Asquith politely rejected it. Lloyd George asked again in December of 1916, and Asquith declined. This was the 1st of December. So with that second refusal, uh, Aitken's newspapers the very next day came out and criticized the government and called for a war council. And the Sunday papers did the same. Now, this angered most of the conservatives. Uh, They didn't trust Lloyd George either. (laughs) He wasn't their type, obviously. But they called on Asquith to resign, and their intention was that Asquith would form a new government, preferably without Lloyd George, but if necessary, including him, but, you know, maybe in a small, lesser role. So Asquith got nervous. Uh, he announced that the government would be restructured, so some kind of cabinet shuffle, I'm, I'm guessing, but then he changed his mind. Lloyd George resigned 
And in those days, the resignation of a, of a cabinet minister was almost like a, you know, like a, a sign of non-confidence in the government. So after receiving advice from several liberal and conservative members, uh, Asquith also resigned. So the king, doing his job, uh, asked Bonner Law and the conservatives to form a government. But Asquith refused his support and the conservatives didn't have the votes. So the king then asked Lloyd George to form a government. Now Bonner Law supported him, as did some of the conservatives, including your favorite, Lord Curzon, who conveniently forgot his promise to Asquith only a few days earlier (laughs) that he wouldn't serve with Lloyd George. I guess... uh, The temptation was too much. Uh, Ex-conservative Prime Minister Balfour agreed to join them, and so did many liberals. So Lloyd George cobbled together a coalition of some of the liberals uh, and the uh, some of the conservatives, and believe it or not, the uh, the Labour MPs. And he, he promised them a, a share of the cabinet, and, and they went for it. This is a pretty significant uh, political shuffle. The liberals were split again. So they split under Gladstone over home rule. They split over the Ulster crisis, with many of them becoming unionist rather than liberal, or liberal unionist. And now they split with many following Asquith into opposition. So this is the point where the Liberal Party began its decline. Some blame Lloyd George. They call his uh, seizure of power a conspiracy. But, you know, Asquith could have stayed in power. Yeah, made him resign. Right. All he had to do was, you know, give Lloyd George his war cabinet, you know, he could have stayed aloof and, and let that run under his under his uh, semi-direction. I don't know what he would have done. Uh, Lloyd George, though, had support from all parties and the press and the public, who didn't necessarily like him. They believed that he had the vision, the drive, and the efficiency that were needed. You know, as I say, he got things done. So Lloyd George got his war cabinet. Carson became first Lord of the Admiralty, but he wasn't in, in the war cabinet. It was Milner and Curzon, Bonner Law, who also became Minister of the Exchequer, and Arthur Henderson for Labour. So interesting, uh, you had uh, Lloyd George, a Liberal, and then a bunch of Conservatives and Labour. Uh, of the of the five of them, only Bonner Law had ministerial duties. How old is Labour now? It's not that old, right? It's no. a relatively young party. Very, very. Uh, Hankey was the secretary, and this group met almost daily. So unlike Asquith's group that met intermittently, these guys met 200 of the first 235 days. They've got a a real work ethic. Yeah. And they devoted themselves to the problems of strategy and administration. For brief periods in 1917 and 1918, 
they added the prime ministers of the dominions so that it became the imperial war cabinet. They created new ministries, labor, food, shipping, and pensions. Prominent industrialists were brought in to head these new ministries. They also created committees to do the actual work, but each committee was headed by a member of the war cabinet. Lloyd George also employed a number of bright young men as uh, secretaries and had them gather precise information and statistics, which were often buried in isolated departments, or, or sometimes the statistics were, were completely lacking. So he had them you know, create the statistics and then gather them and then use that information. The, these guys were known as Lloyd George's leg men. Uh, they were very effective and widely disliked. So sometimes you know you're doing a good job when everybody hates you. <laughs> oh, this is this is a little bit like the way they uh, Mac. I don't know. It's it's giving me uh, memories of McNamara's. What do they call them? Masters of the Universe or something? The the action intellectuals they assembled to do the Vietnam War. Oh yeah, yeah, Some yeah, kind yeah, of, yeah. Okay, except these know, guys did a good job. Avengers assemble kind of situation, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Well, one example, uh, Joseph Davies, a statistician from South Wales, collected statistics on ship sinkings and farm production. And, and that information proved extremely valuable. The only area where the war cabinet uh, failed was in coordinating political and military strategy. And that was mostly because of uh, obstruction from Robertson and Haig. The War Cabinet passed the Defense of the Realm Act, uh, DORA for its initials. Uh, oh, sorry, no, that that this is earlier. Uh, DORA was passed. Yeah, they had already passed it. Yeah. In uh, August of 1914, so right after the uh, outbreak of war, Defense of the Realm Act. It gave the government wide powers over people and property. So this included everything from the internment of aliens to taking over factories, street lighting, and whistling for taxi cabs. And I think this had some, I think this applied to India too. I think this was disliked in India as well. Yeah, I found an episode of that we'll, we'll be coming up with in a, in a little while. Yeah. Um, Workers in key industries needed a leaving certificate to move to another job. Oh, they're really. Yeah, you're we're pinning these these vital jobs down. So you cannot move to another job without permission. The railways were taken under government control and then shipping and then the ports. The government purchased large stocks of sugar, wheat, meat, and hides and they <laughs> they basically bought all of the exports of those things from australia and new zealand all of it it makes me uh think of how how interesting it is that in a crisis yeah they they turned to a socialist central yeah, socialist planning, planning and authoritarian removal of freedoms which is they don't have to go together but they they do when England does it, certainly. Yes. 
Yes. Mm -hmm. They also made a change to liquor licensing laws. So there was a a, uh, claim that uh, munitions workers or, or key industry workers were spending too long at the pub going for long lunches, right? And this angered people. They should be working every possible hour. And then you had, of course, the traditional British vices of drunkenness and absenteeism. So to re- to to remove those, the government changed the hours that pubs could open. They had to shut after the lunch hour crowd, which I think was around 2.30, and then they couldn't open again until 5. So it was now impossible to spend the day in the pub you had to you had to go out when it closed uh this was known as holy hour even though it was longer (laughs) and and led oh and they also had to close at night rather than than stay open so it led to uh if you're an older person or or like me a, a frequent tourist in britain you're very familiar with the phrase time gentlemen please and that's the bartender telling you finish your last drink and mm. and and go cuz we got <laughs> we got to close right. and it it got into a pattern i mean obviously people ignored them or you know or bought two two drinks at last call <laughs> you know things like that so the bartenders would just keep it up time gentlemen please and then they would just keep repeating it until you got annoyed enough to go home Right. The the call varied slightly in in Ireland. It was uh, time, gentlemen, please, Paddy, don't you have a home to go to? <laughs> <laughs> and that lasted until 1988. Interesting World War One measure that lasted that long. Holy hour. Holy hour, yeah. Um, the suffragettes, if you remembered them, uh, they staged a demonstration. Led by Christabel Pankhurst, they marched to Whitehall, bearing signs with the slogan, We Demand the Right to Work. Hmm. Yeah, many of them abandoned the the suffrage campaign for the duration of the war. Uh, Some didn't. And then they also demanded the right to work. And Lloyd George said, (laughs) you bet. Granted. Yeah, that was easy. So women went to work in jobs previously reserved for men, including the factories. Hundreds of thousands of women were brought into the shell factories. And that's a damn dangerous job. Uh, Others became typists in business and government offices. And very, very quickly, the male office clerk vanished. Never to return. Well, not yet anyway. Uh, Women became tram conductors. There were female police officers. Uh, AJP Taylor says that other countries followed the same pattern, but none took it as far as the British did. Perhaps it was the strength of the suffrage movement. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, Building all of these new factories and then transferring workers, particularly women workers, revealed the need for a whole range of amenities that were previously considered unnecessary. Uh, Canteens, nurseries, 
restrooms, uh, hostels. So Lloyd George created a Department of Welfare within the Ministry of Munitions. Just don't, you know, so you don't forget that connection. Uh, headed by a fellow with the unusual name of Seabom Roundtree, <laughs> a, a pioneer of new management methods. To protect the workers, they extended unemployment insurance, which had been created in a, in a much smaller way in, in 1911. So they extended that to munitions workers in 1916 and then to a wider range of related industries. They introduced rationing in 1918 for meat, sugar, butter, and eggs. The, the rationing was more because of long queues, long lineups, rather and, and hoarding too, rather than any real shortages. Uh, flour mills were nationalized in April of 1918, and the government gave itself the power to seize or to cultivate unoccupied or badly farmed land. Oh, they didn't have that before. Nope. I thought is it so eminent what's eminent domain? That's not a uh, I don't a know if that was a thing before this. Oh well. Prices were guaranteed and agricultural laborers got a wage increase. Now all all of this these... is this is Bolshevism. <laughs> Isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, total war yeah. leads to war communism. Yeah. Well, it leads to you need the most efficient method. Yeah. And these guys are basically admitting that in a crisis capitalism is not as efficient. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. It's supposed to be the reverse, at least that's what we're told. Uh so all of these changes led to inflation which caused hardship, again, for people living on fixed incomes or, or those workers whose wages weren't rising as quickly. Uh, taxation did increase from seven, or at least the revenue from it, from seven uh, and a half percent of the national income to 18 percent. The government's budget in 1913 was under 200 million pounds. By 1918, it was two and a half billion. So that's with, why they were able to fight the war despite running out of money. It was a complete transformation of the entire financial state industry yep. system. Yep. Now, after the war, most of these government controls were lifted. But there's one idea that persisted there's one idea that never went away and is still with us and that's the belief that the government is ultimately responsible for the economy yeah yeah they want to take i mean the contemporary version is they they'll take the credit if the economy went well they'll say that it was beyond their control if it if it didn't go well i think it's beyond their control <clears throat> at the best of times but you're right they'll take the credit but they certainly take the blame well yeah in this in the electoral sense that if the if the economy doesn't go well the government usually is replaced yeah so we 
we're talking about economic mobilization, not economic alone, but how the economies of these belligerents were transformed. And we just finished talking about England, but there's another big story in Germany. We talked about Germany at the start, but now we're getting back to Germany. Is that right? Well, yeah, we we mentioned Rathenau and how very efficient the Germans were at first. But later in the war, there was a, a, a major leadership change. Um, Hinden, General Hindenburg had become an even more popular figure, a, a father figure, really, more popular than the Kaiser. And there were, there were some who knew that he really owed his fame to his chief of staff, Erich von Ludendorff. In fact, Hindenburg was retired before the war began, called out of retirement to take over the Eastern Front. Uh, Hindenburg had this serene, uh, Im- imperturbable uh, confidence to him. Ludendorff was apparently highly emotional and impetuous, but as a team, they managed to win on the Eastern Front, and they also managed to have Falkenhayn dismissed. So this is the chief of staff and war minister. So they did like a a campaign to undermine him and eventually succeeded in having him dismissed from his post. And Hindenburg became chief of the general staff. Was there argument against Falkenhayn that he was got them bogged down in the West, basically? Uh, That he was losing the war. He didn't know what he was doing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, they blamed every defeat on him and took credit for every victory themselves. <clears throat> and and their whispering campaign was a, a bit like uh, Haig, you know, <laughs> undermining Kitchen Haig and Robertson undermining Kitchener, uh, and it worked. And and the, the, they did the same thing to Sir John French. <clears throat> so uh, Hindenburg is now chief of the general staff, but it's Ludendorff who became uh, the secret dictator of Germany. His his title was first quartermaster general, but there was no question of, of who was in charge. Through Hindenburg, Ludendorff publicly criticized the chancellor and issued orders to him. So you now have a general telling, you know, the the number one politician what to do. And the Kaiser and his government, they just bowed to his will. I don't know if it was strength of character, if it was like too much trust in the military guys. Uh, But yeah, remember when the war started, we talked about Ludendorff and how he's this guy that they keep sending places to fix impossible situations. Mm. Right. So I guess he's there's this mystique that starts to develop around him. And they trust People that get, he can win the war yeah. for them. People get superstitious, right, when you have a good run. Yeah, and, <clears throat> and there's still faith have. in a lot of corners that, you know, the war can be won if only we could figure out how. And, okay, Ludendorff must know. But there were a few people who were worried Colonel von Marshall said, Ludendorff, in his limitless ambition and pride, will wage war until the German people are totally exhausted, and then the monarchy will have to take the blame. Quite prophetic. And General Gröner said, Er ist ganz Soldat, aber gar keine Diplomat. He is everything of a soldier, but nothing of a diplomat. And sure enough... That was quite accurate, too. Ludendorff couldn't work with anyone who disagreed with him. 
When he was in the East, he complained endlessly about Falkenhayn's unwillingness to send him more troops. He wanted six divisions and said he could capture Riga and even Petrograd, St. Petersburg. Now that he's in charge, he sees that German resources are finite. And after Verdun and the Somme, the army just wasn't capable of launching a major offensive. So he came around to agreeing with Falkenhayn's view. His successor in the East was uh, Hoffman, the, the Colonel Hoffman who came up with the plan for Tannenberg. And Hoffman said, oh, I need more troops here and then I can win a victory. And Ludendorff said, uh, no, we, we can't afford to send you any troops. Uh, and then he also came around to agreeing with Falkenhayn's view that only ruthless use of submarines against Britain's overseas trade <clears throat> could win for them. This is usually called unrestricted submarine warfare. At the yeah, beginning, you keep hearing that slogan. Yeah, at the beginning the, of the, the war, submarines. it wasn't a possibility. They didn't have enough submarines, hmm. and the politicians knew very well if we do this, we are going to really seriously tick yeah. off the we're Americans. Gonna bring, we're going to bring the Americans in, almost certainly, right? and we're trying to keep them neutral. <clears throat> Falkenhayn, though, is one of the first guys to realize we cannot win the war on the West Front or the East Front. If we're going to win, it's going to have to be with that. So, of course, everybody said, no, 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 can't do that. So the politicians overruled Falkenhayn, but they couldn't stop Ludendorff. And until that strategy could win, he needed to mobilize all of Germany's resources. They had to go to total war. That included the sick, uh, the men who'd been wounded, women, children. Ludendorff said, he who does not work will not eat either, which sounds very socialist, doesn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Wow. It's, they turn it into such a bad thing. Well, yes. <laughs> like so, that That's meant <clears throat> to talk about, that's that's meant as a critique of the idle rich, not the... Uh, <laughs> not the not idle the sick, wounded. Not the sick and wounded. My right, God. right. So <clears throat> Ludendorff wanted to double or even triple German production of guns and munitions. But of course, he knows nothing of economics. He doesn't realize that the raw materials are lacking because Germany's cut off by the British blockade. So his production targets weren't reached and, and some uh, construction projects had to be abandoned partway through. So he's this. He's this blowhard, he's a ball of energy, he shows up, he starts yelling at people, and that works when people were sitting around because they were lazy, but now he's yelling at sick people and children and women, and he's yelling at workers who don't have materials and energy, yeah. So oh, it's, it's worse than that. And he's so, gradually realizing step by step that he has to do what his predecessor did in his place. He, he has to go further than that, and, and he yeah. did. He made the Reichstag pass a law concerning service to the fatherland. All males between 16 and 60 were liable to service. He just never realized you can't command the economy as if it was an army. You know, after suffering a million and a half casualties in 1916 alone, there just weren't enough men to form new divisions and to fill new jobs with trained workers. So he's looking around for men who aren't there. Because the good industrial worker is also a good soldier. So you can't get both things out of the same person. 
right. So he's looking around for other persons. In the fall of 1916, he had Belgian workers rounded up like cattle and deported them to Germany. German industrialists approved. They now had, you know, skilled workers in their factories. But worldwide protests gave the civilian government the the chills. And, and they finally had enough courage to, to stand up and, and put a stop to this. Um, were, were German allies so subordinate that they didn't complain? Or would Austria have complained about this too? I don't think Austria is in a position to complain they're essentially on life support and they know it right right the moment the germans stop supporting them they're going to lose to the russians okay i'm sure that britain and france had protests about this but what germans wouldn't care about that how could they care about that but maybe america maybe Yeah. yeah yeah and and when the news is is coming from belgium it's going to hit the netherlands which is neutral Right. So there and those neutrals. and those neutral countries are going to make a stink, and that is going to waft over to the U.S. and improve the odds of them coming in against you, which you, you can't afford. Yeah. He looked elsewhere too. Uh, on the fifth of November, nineteen sixteen, Ludendorff insisted that the Central Powers declare Poland independent. Mm. So we're going to take a slice of. Uh, Austrian territory, and then we're going to take what the Germans have occupied from the Russians, and we're going to declare an independent Poland. He hoped that he could recruit 750,000 Polish soldiers. I don't know where he got this idea, because he got 5,000. Well, was the plan to include the German bits of poland in this poland i wonder you know i doubt it i doubt it yeah i doubt it too Uh, the other the other thing in the end of not the end but around the this part of tuckman's book she talks about how german war aims kept getting more and more delusional yes over time and they had an idea that poland specifically but other other of these countries between German and Germany and Russia would have semi-independence, but they'd always be under German tutelage. So they would have representation at the Reichstag or something, but they wouldn't be able to make uh, not voting power. They had a they had all kinds of very detailed schemes for how they would be absorbed without having any say over there. And you're right that these these uh, projects changed and the war yeah. aims changed. Uh, part of it was Ludendorff's in- influence and, and part of it was, well, I guess we'll go into it in more more detail when we're talking about war aims specifically. But there were there were some chances before this of a compromise peace. Mm. The British and French probably would have accepted a return to the status quo. But the Germans wanted the status quo of 1916, yeah. meaning we we get Belgium and we get <laughs> Poland, right? And and then we'll make peace. So obviously that's unacceptable. And then both sides start to harden. There was a possibility of a compromise or a separate peace with Russia. Now, the Tsar would have had to sign on to this, and we know that he is an honorable weak and stubborn person but his honor 
you know, would have prevented him from from making a separate peace, except that Russia was in bad shape and and they knew it. A compromised peace would have been very difficult to sell to people. You know, you've promised victory. And another defeat, like in the Russo-Japanese War, is going to lead to revolution. So to avoid that, it would have had to be a very attractive separate peace. So with the Germans declaring Poland independent, you just killed any chance of that. Not going to happen. So every country is making a complete, like a, an effort that has never occurred before in in history total war is without precedent really the closest i think is the nation in arms in france in the french revolution but this is beyond everything and of course it includes mobilizing everybody and that includes conscription Uh, every country has conscription except the british and there's a way that they that they got to that. Uh, casualties we've mentioned before were ridiculously high. There were so many widows and bereaved parents in Great Britain that a movement was started to make white the color of mourning because the streets were becoming too gloomy. Because everybody was always wearing black. Well, imagine the casualty lists from a single battle, right? Yeah. Everybody would have to take several days off to organize yeah yeah so this movement didn't catch on but the the old rituals were being curtailed to wearing a simple black armband and a lot of the formal observances of of death were being dropped altogether so in in conscription uh at first older men could be called up by 1916, though, you've pretty much used up those reserves of manpower and every country has to wait <clears throat> until the next annual class reaches military age. So you've got to wait until the next group uh, of people reach age 18. Uh, and that applies to all of the continental powers. Now, Russia has seemingly unlimited manpower. Germany's birth rate had remained high and the German armies actually increased in size. France, though, had been uh, in a position of declining birth rate for decades. Oh, Dave, let me just, uh, I found some numbers here. Okay. Uh, I'm reading this book about the Balfour Declaration for our Middle East, when we get to the Middle East. But uh, here's the author. Anyway, the book is called the Balfour Declaration. From a British population of 46 million... Around 5 million troops were sent abroad by the British government, 705,000 of whom were killed and 1,700,000 wounded. Across the empire, um, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa were mobilized with nearly a million from those territories. And then a further 1 million soldiers and non-combatants were recruited from India. Right. So, And I guess India was first... And then, I mean, and then Canada and Australia and New Zealand came online. And mm-hmm. Yeah, the Canadians showed up pretty early, too. <clears throat> and the numbers were, were surprising. What The big shift, though, is that the French army is getting smaller every year. Yeah. 
and the German army is getting bigger. And while Russia has unlimited manpower, France doesn't. And that means more pressure on Britain to pick up a bigger share of the front, a bigger share of the workload, and that that means more troops. And the British were different. They didn't have conscription. They relied on volunteers. And that was their first reaction is, we'll just get more volunteers. And that need for more soldiers created a new industry, the recruitment industry. It was a massive, multi-approach propaganda campaign. The national anthem became customary at theater and cinema performances. And eventually it's going to spread to, you know, athletic competitions. I mean, think of the U.S. now. They can't play sports without having the anthem first. And and they have to march out a color party, you know, with a few rifles and and a and a flag. I I do not see the connection. I don't know what a basketball game and the army have to do with each other. And and football is ridiculous. What does the national anthem have to do with your sporting competitions? It's right. it's two teams from the same country playing against a, each other. A bunch of people getting together. They might as well. Might as well do something patriotic. Yep. Uh, This is when Kitchener's famous poster was everywhere. It didn't even need words. All you needed was a picture of Kitchener glaring at you and pointing a finger. Right? right. And it led... Maybe I'll use that as the poster for this, uh, as the photo for this episode. Okay. (laughs) It's a pretty famous picture and it's still considered one of the most uh, memorable and successful pieces of advertising ever designed and of course like anything you know successful in Britain the Americans are going to copy it and have Uncle Sam pointing and saying I want you I I don't know if that was more effective than Kitchener but it's interesting that it's more abstract in America right it's it's not a real person in Britain they use a real Kitchener, but in yep. American yep. views, Uncle Sam. That's, that's for sure. The, the British didn't go with John Bull. They went with uh, with Kitchener. Yeah. Every community had its own recruiting uh, committee. Clergymen preached sermons. Uh, music halls ended performances with, with a patriotic tableau. Military bands paraded in the streets. Uh, there was a new hit song entitled, We Don't Want to Lose You, But We Think You Ought to Go. That's a little on the nose. (laughs) Right. Uh, And there were uh, groups of young girls who presented white feathers to young men who weren't in uniform. Very embarrassing for soldiers on leave, right? They figure I can take my uniform off for a couple of days. Oh, no, I can't. (laughs) And uh, the novelist Baroness Ortsy, uh, the writer of I, the, the Scarlet Pimpernel, I believe, uh, founded the Women of England's Active Service League, and its members pledged to have nothing to do with any man who was eligible to join the army but had not. That's a lot of pressure. Uh, I, I think her, her group eventually had a few thousand, but <clears throat> the whole community is telling you to go. That puts pressure on your parents because they're going to be asked, you know, why isn't your son in the army? So basically you're hearing it from your teachers, your clergymen, uh, everybody in the neighborhood, 
complete strangers, the posters, the the bands that, you know, the, the pressure is immense. There wasn't a shortage of, of volunteers. There were there were plenty of them, but it led to some interesting uh, developments when it came to enlisting in the army. So there was a uh, a test. You had to be screened and I, it still exists. Uh, you, you have to prove that you are physically fit. You had to be of a certain height, especially to be in the artillery, right? You had to be four foot something at least so that you could reach the breach of the gun. Um, and it turned up some really interesting statistics. I was looking to find them again, but I remember a few of them. Uh, the Boer War actually led to a really interesting not a crisis, but a, at least a, an interesting revelation for the powers that be. When they were gathering up all of their volunteers to go to South Africa, between 40 and 60 percent of the men failed their physical. Oh, wow. Where they were declared physically unfit. Wow. Yeah. So obviously the health the state of health in Britain at the turn of the century was appallingly bad. So part of it was um, accidents. Uh, in, in 1919, there were 8.6 crippled children for every 1,000 in Britain. So the and culture there were, of industrial safety has not quite come into... No. Well, during the 1920s. 200,000 industrial injuries of varying degree, but 200,000 injuries a year. Wow. 40,000 in the coal industry alone. So not only crippled children, you know, suffering from uh, rickets and and plenty of other diseases. diseases, Yeah. Yeah. So many of them related to malnutrition. uh, Others related to living in, you know, damp, unhealthy housing or lack of housing so these guys are showing up with tuberculosis uh all kinds of diseases uh and their diet right malnutrition if you're barely scraping by your your diet's going to consist largely of potatoes and bread i guess so the number of men who are physically unfit is obviously a big deal. It led to uh, the British government speculating that they had to do something about the country's you know, state of health. So there was a lot of talk and nothing was done. But in World War I, it's going to come up again. You're going to have uh, over a million, I wish I could remember the exact number, but men who, who are unfit for the army. So, of course, the army did what it's always done and just turned a blind eye to to a lot of these issues. Just relax the standards. Well, you know, a guy's begging, right? Uh, Lying about their age. That happened uh, at the Battle of the Somme. uh, I read uh, an account from a survivor from the Newfoundland Regiment who turned 16 in the trenches just before the battle. So he's joining up at 15, lying about his age and, and, of course, lying about his parents' consent for him to join. 
So you can also lie about your your health condition. I know a few stories from uh, the Canadian example. <clears throat> One guy went for his test, failed the physical, went back the next day with a a bottle of uh, rye whiskey for the doctor, and there he goes. He's in the army. And there was also the case of uh, two brothers. Uh, the second brother, Tom, was declared unfit because his teeth were so bad. And he took the teeth out of his mouth and said, what the hell are you talking about? These are the same teeth you passed my brother with yesterday. Oh my God. <laughs> what a story. And there are, there are plenty. So in addition to all the men who are uh, rejected as unfit, there are plenty who got in who weren't fit either. And then there were the, the, the troops that at first were rejected because they were the wrong color. Uh, in in Canada, uh, at first, uh, indigenous or, or, or native volunteers were, were turned away. And black troops were turned away as well. Later on, they were accepted. Um, the black soldiers put in uh, construction battalions uh, rather than combat because it was thought that, you know, white soldiers wouldn't want to have to fight next to them and uh somebody finally realized wait a sec these these native guys you know they're hunters they can shoot they'd make yeah. great you know sharpshooters and and snipers and sure enough they did but at first we didn't we didn't want them they didn't fit in with the i guess the group photo would have looked different so this uh recruiting industry in britain got a little crazy and and I came across uh, Horatio Bottomley. What a story. Th this guy was a private enterprise recruiter. So he, he'd had a career already. He was a financier, a journalist, a newspaper owner. In fact, he was the founder of the Financial Times and a swindler. He, he was arraigned in court on fraud charges in 1893 and defended himself, and he was acquitted. <laughs> so if you can do that, obviously you go into politics, right? Nobody can touch you, yeah. <laughs> so he, he became a Liberal Member of Parliament in 1906, and he founded a magazine called John Bull, which fit his populist style. Now, I don't know if he discovered uh, you know, patriotism after his brush with the law, or whether he was patriotic from the very beginning, but it certainly worked for him. Now, he mismanaged his affairs, and he was also financially extravagant. He, he ruined himself. He was discredited and bankrupt before the war, and he actually had to resign his seat in Parliament. So un, unlike the United States, you cannot be bankrupt and stay uh, in, in the government. If, if you're thinking of somebody who sounds a little bit like him, yeah, <laughs> and, and it gets more more similar as we go on. So, uh, bottomly, now that he's out of Parliament, he formed the Business League. He spoke to large crowds, calling for government to be run by businessmen instead of politicians. He was still scamming, though. He ran a, a lottery, operated from Switzerland, so that he could avoid British laws. He ran a lottery with a £25,000 prize, which was won by the sister-in-law of one of Bottomley's close associates. It turns out that all but 250 pounds of that money ended up in a bank account belonging to 
you-know-who. Of course, he, he had expenses. Uh, he spent heavily on mistresses and racehorses. Very, very expensive lifestyle. Gambling. Gambling or he bought racehorses? He bought racehorses. Okay. I'm sure he gambled as well. Uh, the war saved him. It certainly revived his fortunes. Now, in his <clears throat> magazine, John Bull, he described Serbia as, quote, a hotbed of cold-blooded conspiracy and subterfuge. When Britain declared war, though, he very quickly reversed his position and said the nicest things about Serbia. And he became a leading propagandist addressing public meetings. He warned about the danger of Germans in Britain, the enemy within, he called them. Watch out for, you know, German waiters, uh, actors, you know, they're, they're all spies. And he appointed himself the spokesman for the man in the street. He spoke at hundreds of meetings <clears throat> to recruit. And when there was uh, an admission fee, he took a share of the take. His influence was enormous. The writer D.H. Lawrence, who, who detested Bonhamly, thought that he represented the national spirit and that he might one day become prime minister. By 1915, Bottomley had a regular weekly column in the Sunday pictorial. He labeled Germans unnatural freaks. He called for Labour Party leaders who opposed the war to be charged with high treason. And he claimed that the Americans were remaining neutral to increase their economic power at the expense of Europe. Well, he wasn't always wrong. Of course, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't always wrong, but, you know, there's, there's some hysterical stuff in there. He visited the front, <clears throat> had dinner with uh, Field Marshal Haig, and he was a big hit with the troops. He also visited the fleet uh, at anchor in Scapa Flow. He was tremendously popular, and he, he hoped that this would lead to an official position in the government. A.J.P. Taylor says that Bottomley made £78,000 for himself and then squandered it all on women, racehorses, and champagne. So I, I do wonder if he could have become prime minister. Remember, we, we were talk, talking about Lloyd George and how he didn't fit in. He was an outsider. I think that would have worked against Bottomley, too. I just can't see yeah. those those I British aristocrats a, welcoming him in. I think in America, sure. But Britain has a pretty strong aristocratic class that keeps people like this out of power. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, well, well, we've seen it in the U.S. We've seen a, a bankrupt yeah, person become president. And and I've been listening to people talk about how uh, Trump can even uh, run run for and be elected president if he's in jail. Apparently, that's uh, no yeah. impediment. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. The, but Britain is, I mean, all the look at all the names of the people in the government throughout this period. There's no there's no populist swindler who came in with the people behind him that's not how things work there uh you can go pretty far i you know i i, I wouldn't call him a swindler but chamberlain 
jo- Joseph Chamberlain had a certain populist. Anyway, on with Bottomley. Uh, after the war, he discharged his debts and he ran for parliament again as an independent. Uh, his slogan, Bottomley, Brains and Business. Uh, he won his wow. seat with 80% of the vote. He tried to start his own party. His platform was uh, enforcement of war reparations, the superiority of Britain over the League of Nations, exclusion of undesirable aliens, and the introduction of business principles into government. Very familiar, isn't it? When is the League of Nations? I thought the League of Nations was after World War One. Yeah, this is after the war. Okay, okay, okay. He made enough money to pay off his debts and, and run for parliament again. So he's now back in politics. In 1919, he started a victory bonds club. For a, a subscription fee of one pound, members were eligible for annual prizes of up to 20,000. But of course That's he... another lottery. It's another lottery. Well, yeah, or a Ponzi scheme. Uh, He spent the money to buy two newspapers. He was hoping to become a press baron. Uh, But uh, he had his traditional mismanagement and shoddy accounting, and that ruined his victory bonds club. Pretty soon, hundreds of people were demanding their money back. A former associate, with whom he'd quarreled, described the club as Bottomley's latest and greatest swindle. Against the advice of his own lawyers... Bottomley sued for libel and brought charges of blackmail and extortion against this guy. Well, he ended up back in court himself, charged with 24 counts of fraud. Once again, he defended himself, swore that he'd never taken a penny. The jury took 28 minutes to find him guilty, and he served a little over five years in prison. Horatio Bottomley. Yeah. Charming. Good name. Good name, too. I was looking at pictures of him. There's many pictures of him online on, on stage. Yep. Gesticulating with his hands during war rallies and recruiting rallies. And and you wonder, how could he be so popular? He looks like Humpty Dumpty. He does. He does. But so does John Bull himself. Maybe that's why he ah, that name. Maybe. Maybe. So the the British volunteer system was was working. There was no shortage of men. In fact, Britain couldn't equip the men that they did have. But Parliament and the politicians wanted to give the impression that they were doing something, something active, something useful. So the idea of conscription came up. Just to, to appear to be doing something, we can draft men. There was also a a popular clamor for conscription, uh, which insisted that there were 650,000 shirkers uh, hiding in Britain. So not only are there spies everywhere, but there are also all these guys who are dodging uh, the war. So conscription became law in January of 1916. Uh, Recruitment of volunteers stopped. The results were pretty disappointing. Uh, Instead of revealing the 650,000 shirkers, conscription discovered one and a half million claims for exemption by men who were performing essential work in industry. Uh, You don't want to draft them. 
And this move also created conscientious objectors. Now, there were only five or 6,000 of them, but they had an importance way, way beyond uh, their numbers. I mean, first, they, they brought a new word into the English language, conchis, for conscientious objectors. But it, it for the first time, it brought home the idea that it was possible to object to the war on moral grounds. And are, are conchis from a particular religious community the quakers or something or the, are the quakers are in america uh no well they're no they're still in britain yeah some some but you also get just you know people who have a really good question like what is the war actually about <laughs> and it <laughs> it started a debate uh and and this is going to lead to or at least contribute to the growing discussion of war aims something the belligerents had never actually stated. I mean, obviously, we're the good guys, and they're the bad guys, but but what are we actually fighting for? Uh, in, in the absence of any clear statement of purpose from the government, people are going to guess. The British soldiers in the trenches were singing uh, a song of their own composition. It was called, We're Here because we're here and they sang it to the tune of uh old lang syne and, and the lyrics keep, does there's just we're here because we're here because we're here because we're here that's it yeah <laughs> the title is is all of the lyrics uh, and if that's what they think wow you've not done your job what is the war actually about why why are we fighting the Germans are obviously bad, and we have to stop them. But why are they bad? So we have to go with, well, we're fighting for um, democracy. No, that doesn't work because Russia is on our side. <laughs> <laughs> and they're the least democratic, right? And the Germans have universal suffrage. They're more democratic than you are because you don't let all of your males vote, never mind the women. So, oh, okay. Well, we're fighting to uh, defend neutral countries that the Germans have invaded, like Belgium. Okay. But you trampled um, neutrality. Of <laughs> right. So this is going to lead to quite a bit of talk. And I... I'm not sure why, but the talk began to go more and more outside Europe. The German colonies, for example, in Africa and the Pacific, which, you know, obviously, obviously we intend to keep. Uh, so how do we fit that into war aims and make it plausible? And then there's the future of the Ottoman Empire of Turkey. And Gallipoli has a lot to do with this. But so do a couple of gentlemen that have just spawned another episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. So we'll we'll do that next, Monsieur uh, Georges Picou and uh, Sir Mark Sykes. And uh, their their handy little agreement, I would say, we're still suffering from today. Mm, true. 
So next episode, what what's it all about?